Was it hockey great Wayne Gretzky who said the shots you don't take can't go in? On the other hand, you can't be a puck hog. Uh, For instance, you couldn't call WeWork a win. From Breaking Bad to Shakespeare, come listen in on a chat with Josh Wolf. That's right, we're going back to Shakespeare, though not as far back as Chaucer or Beowulf. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Hi, Josh. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast, know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions, and we do hope you enjoy this podcast. Yeah, we're ready to go. Josh Wolf, welcome to TC's Chartcast. So great that you could join us. Awesome to be with you guys. Yes, we're very thrilled to have you on. Um, followed most of your work for a very long time and, and very interested to have a deep discussion with you today. Um, you know, you have a, a very remarkable career and life story. Um, and, you know, as, as is tradition on this show, maybe you could begin by telling us who Josh Wolf is, you know, where you were born, where you were raised. Um, where you went to school and sketched the arc of your career out, because I'm, I'm, it's a fascinating story, and I'm sure our listeners would be very interested to hear it. Well, it, it all makes sense in hindsight. Obviously, my the governing force of my life, I always say, is randomness and optionality, and ex post facto. You know, it it seems like this perfect linear chain of events, but a prior, you never know. Uh, I was born in Fullerton, California. Uh, both parents were from Brooklyn. They split when I was two and a half. Uh, dad's infidelity. Mom and I moved to Coney Island, Brooklyn, with her parents. Um, her mother and then uh, her stepfather. Uh, my grandmother <clears throat> was a meter maid in Brooklyn. My uh, biological grandfather was sort of a deadbeat, uh, and my uh, uh, sort of adopted grandfather delivered the Daily News late night uh, in the late shift. And so the four of us lived in a two-bedroom apartment in Coney Island. And uh, mom was a school teacher teaching special ed, pushed me to be a nerd. Around eight years old. Mom went after dad <clears throat> for uh, child support, uh, which he had never paid. And uh, he went after her for custody. So I spent an interesting two years of my life uh, living on a on a desert ranch in a town called Leona Valley, which um, uh, I, many people have not been to. It's uh, sort of like meth land, somewhere between Breaking Bad and uh, I don't I don't know what other reference, but uh, uh, taking a kid from Brooklyn, putting him in cowboy boots in the middle of the desert, sort of surreal. But it became a formative part of my life because um, I spent a lot of time alone. It was very introspective time, a uh, town of about a thousand people, uh, two grades per classroom, sort of totally bizarre, surreal situation. Um, and then came back to New York. Um, it became sort of a defining chip on my shoulder. You know, I saw these nuclear families that I was envious or jealous of, uh, present uh, paternal figures. And my own father in that way, interestingly, sort of became the the archetype through inversion of what I wanted to be, you know, sort of invert, always invert, as Charlie Munger would say, I, I sort of wanted to be the reciprocal of my dad, of, uh, you know, being a present father, present husband. And uh, yeah, so that sort of defined my, my personal trajectory. Uh, <clears throat> Mom pushed me to be a, a nerd. Uh, I grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn, which is mostly black and Latino and Eastern European Jews. And so you've got Brighton Beach, which is primarily like Russian, just to the east of us. And Coney Island, um, where you know, average family of four is making twenty five thousand dollars, and I grew up between this juxtaposition of these two cultures. Um, Coney Island itself is, you know, carnies and hucksters and all kinds of con men that are always running some scheme, and that also played sort of a critical role in my sort of squinty eyed distrust of human nature. And um, when I was uh, in high school, I ended up uh, doing a Westinghouse science project, which. Uh, you know, sort of always, I think, uh, oddly, uh, perversely predictive that whoever's sponsoring that competition is almost foregone conclusion, you know, are going to end up uh, being in secular decline. So it was Westinghouse, and then I think it became um, IBM, then it became Intel, and then uh, Samsung or Siemens. And so it's almost like one of these uh, contraindicators. But uh, I did work on HIV AIDS. Um, I was totally inspired seeing an HBO movie called And the Band Played On in the early 90s. 
And uh, I, I was convinced that as this young science geek, I was going to go cure AIDS. Knocked on the door of uh, a, a lab in SUNY Downstate, an uh, amazing guy, Dominic Ossie, who was a PhD immunologist. And I must have been 13 years old and said, I want to do my research in the space. And he said, no way, we can't take some you know freshman sophomore out of high school uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, I persisted, which you know became a also defining trait. And uh, I ended up publishing scientific research, becoming a semifinalist on the Westinghouse. And uh, while I was there, he was uh, trading futures and options. And so we would be spinning down a centrifuge of AIDS blood, and uh, he'd be making tens of thousands of dollars. And I became way more enamored with capital markets and having come from no money, wanting to make some. My mother was aghast because she thought, you know, her good little boy from Brooklyn would go be a, a doctor and, you know, go to med school. I ended up going to Cornell originally for an MD PhD, so go be a doctor and and then go into research, and then uh, continuing with Dr. Aussie, who really uh, bizarrely, as a scientist, put me on the capital markets path. Tried to get every internship that I could from either Cornellians or Brooklynites that would give me a shot and open the door, and ended up graduating, went into investment banking. Um, really turned away by like everybody, but you know, I ended up getting a job at Solomon Smith Barney. Worked in a real estate and lodging group, really coveted technology, but couldn't get into that group when, when it was launching. And then within a year, my co-founder or would-be co-founder of Lux, Peter Hebert, he was at Lehman Brothers in Equity Research. I was at uh, Solly, and we decided that we wanted to start a, a venture fund. And I was always obsessed about the intersection between science and finance. And, uh, and that was the sort of very origin stories of Lux. Um, we, we ended up meeting an amazing, very prominent private equity investor who took a gamble on us and put us in business. And in, in hindsight, you know, it's this, as I said at the start, this nice linear chain of events, but totally unknowable a priori. Really remarkable story. And, uh, you know, probably a great foundation for for a movie or a book. I mean, there's a lot of elements of different parts of the country. And, and uh, you certainly had, uh, you know, kind of a hard knocks upbringing. Um, I'm very curious to hear more about this um, kind of tact your mother took with you. You know, you say she pushed you to be a nerd. Um, and you've said, you know, on this interview, and also I've seen you mention it before um, on Twitter and in other articles, having had kind of a chip on your shoulder and that that fueled you. You know, right now we're in such a interesting environment in this country. You know, when you have someone like um, AOC talking about that it's impossible in this country to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, even as she, in fact, did just just that. Uh, you certainly uh, seem that you've done the same. Um, share a little bit more about kind of that work ethic, that hunger, that, that push from your mother, and how you interpret uh, some of the messages coming out of the, out of the left as far as uh, the ability to make one's future in this country. So, you know, I have this line, I say that chips on shoulders put chips in pockets, uh, meaning that the grudge is this great fuel that sort of powers people. It's the, it's the very essence of a trait that I look for in entrepreneurs. There are lots of people that are smart. There are lots of people that are accomplished. There are lots of people that are technologically savvy. But when the rubber hits the road and you have to make very hard choices, usually it's the people with that grit and determination um, that have that. And that's not something that is learned in school or academically or through books. It's something that generally is sort of forged in the fire of emotional hardship, suffering, pain. Um, you know, the great poet, Zach de la Roca of Rage Against the Machine, you know, anger is a gift. Um, there are a lot of people that are kumbaya, you know, mindfulness, meditation, and I, almost by definition, if you're happy, you're content with the present moment. And if you have dissatisfaction, you know, you, you want to change. And so, um, you know, if you think about the two biggest psychological afflictions are the, you know, depression or anxiety, if, if it's depression, you're sort of trapped in the past and you can't get past it. And if it's anxiety, you're constantly just speculating and sort of simulating in your mind all the things that could go wrong about the future. And um, so all the people that say like, be in the moment, be in the present, like there's a, a certain virtues of that, you know, when you're with your children or your loved ones, but um, otherwise dissatisfaction is the great fuel that has created all progress for society that we get to benefit from. So, so having a chip on your shoulder, I think is a great virtue. Um, I didn't ask for mine, but you know, I got it. It was a combination of, you know, broken family, messed up um, relationship with my father, uh, being jealous of other kids that I grew up around. Uh, you know, I lived in a tiny apartment in Coney Island and people had houses and went on vacations. I never went anywhere. Uh, and, and then I saw real wealth when I got to college. And uh, I remember actually I had an internship <clears throat> and uh, uh, there was a girl I was sitting across and it turned out her father was a very prominent guy at Merrill Lynch. And I went to visit them at their house one weekend in uh, Conyers Farms in Greenwich. And I was just like blown away, you know, like, like I thought wealth was a two- you know, uh, story house in Brooklyn and, you know, these people were living on farms. So I wanted that in part because I felt I was smarter than some of these people. They were born in sort of 
you know, the ovarian lottery, getting lucky by the circumstances. And um, so, so I like to find that in people. I like to find whether you are an ethnic minority or you were an immigrant or you had a lisp or you were fat or you were um, gay or whatever it was that the mainstream was somehow picking on you. Uh, there are people that get beaten down by that and fall and there are people that use it as a fuel. So, so that for me is a, a sort of a defining mantra. Yeah. You know, Josh, um, you don't, we don't know each other and this is the first time we've spoken, but you and I have a very similar backstory and it resonates very strongly with me. I came from a broken home, um, very bad relationship with my father, drove a deep fire in me to prove myself. Um, I remember being 14 years old and working at McDonald's in the parking lot and all the cool kids in high school with their Jeeps would be hanging out at McDonald's on Friday night and I would be picking up the garbage. Um, and I was deeply motivated and also because of, I think, the upbringing, very skeptical of, of certain types of personalities, which we'll dig into later, I'm sure. Um, and then came to the U.S., the land of opportunity, and, and worked my tail off. But I'm not also, you know, I'm very aware that I have certain advantages as well um, that might make it more difficult for other people to do it. So I don't want to be like, oh, all it takes is hard work. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, that kind of fire, that kind of hard work, that kind of, you know, I had a very similar experience. When I first came to the U.S. to get my Ph.D., I went to a very elite school, and there were all kinds of people there for all kinds of reasons. And you look across the table and you think, like, there is no difference between me and that person and any differences in fact might be in my advantage all i need to do is put the pedal to the metal and, and work my tail off and so i i really do appreciate um that message and it resonates with me for sure um let's pivot to lux because um actually yeah go ahead yeah well actually if, if i might uh, jordan asked a question on, on the political side and, and there was something i was sort of actually inspired by we've, we've been watching um I don't know if you, you uh, if you've been watching with kids or um, or, or family the uh, some good news the John Krasinski uh, YouTube thing and he's probably in his sixth week now where you know he's trying to put some spotlight on the sunshine and the positivity but there was a really notable one on this recent um, week where it was um, uh, all, all the uh, canceled uh, commencement speeches and uh, graduations for you know this this entire generation right now for this this year twenty twenty that um, are experiencing something that you know nobody really ever has. And um, he got all these famous people to make these cameos, but uh, a bunch of people had asked, like, where do we go from here? You know, like they're, they're almost like they're lost, and um, and they're about to enter the real world where it's no longer about you know being coddled and performing to a test, but dealing with uncertainty and and everything that life throws at you. But but the best story, as you would imagine, and I'm sure she's told it a million times, was Oprah, and she talked about um, you know that she was on a. Uh, um, uh, lo local TV show and uh, whatever it was, she was paired with like some older guy. The older guy was clear that she didn't, th that he didn't want her. You know, it's probably an old white guy, didn't want this overweight black woman. And uh, she gets called in and she's basically knows that she's being fired or demoted. And their form of demotion was basically to put her on the local TV show uh, that was about uh, a talk show. And so uh, she ended up with this, you know, sort of, um, a discarded place, which would end up defining her career because she suddenly felt like this is my spot, you know, and then goes on to be one of the richest women in the world. So I, I just feel a lot of these stories are, of course, apocryphal and they're spun, but there are so many amazing stories of achievement that are totally born in adversity. And it's not um, in spite of the adversity. I believe that it's specifically because of it. I couldn't agree more, you know, um, without divulging too many details, but George and I created a business out of nothing. Uh, we worked hard together, um, we're a team, and then COVID shows up. And uh, a lot of the assumptions we'd made about the business that we'd created suddenly go away. And what do you do? Well, we're going we're gonna to keep doing what we do. We're going to work twice as hard, um, and we're going to create something new uh, out, of, out of what happens with COVID because the motor doesn't stop. Um, and, I, and I do believe that the motor is a huge deal, and I, too, look for those success stories that you can sort of invest in people that have a motor that have a, a talent that are willing, willing to put in the time, um, utterly agnostic to background, race, color, creed. If, if you've got a motor, uh, I'm going to try to support you. And that's sort of been my life philosophy too. And, and it's interesting because there, there's a, uh, there's sort of two forms of optimism, you know, in that when, when things get dark and you start to, to say, okay, you know, how do I find my way out of this? There's like complacent optimism of, and I consider these people suckers, right? They're sitting waiting for people to come around and um, and just deliver something to them. It's like a kid on Christmas, you know, like the gifts will come. And then there's the conditional optimists. And the conditional optimists 
you know, they're more like Tom Sawyer. Like they have to figure out how do I get, how do I mobilize people? How do I um, manipulate things in my favor to be able to uh, uh, do more than anybody thinks possible with less than anybody thinks possible? And uh, it's that repurposing, you know, whether it's um, things that get overfunded and it's the the detritus that's uh, available for, you know, combinatorial fodder. We were watching uh, the Apollo movie with our, our three kids. And I love that scene in the, in, in the movie when they're like, you know, we have to take this square uh, nozzle and fit it into this round hole, or I forget, maybe it's vice versa, but, you know, using nothing but this, you know, and it's like 20 random pieces that are, are um, in the vessel. And, uh, and then that's what you guys, I'm sure, did. That's what I'm sure you guys will do. That's what great entrepreneurs do. They look around at the resources and say, how do I combine this? You know, how do I, how do I find opportunity and make something out of nothing? And it's, you know, that, that's, that's the ultimate resource, you know, as Julian Simon would say, it's, it's human ingenuity. In some ways, I think all of this time uh, that we're able to spend with our children while under shelter in place, I mean, I, I won't speak for you, but I'm willing to guess that um, since you have children, you probably have a little bit more time with them now. Even just, you know, there aren't the commutes, there aren't the after school activities, um, you know, around our house, we've had a lot more time just kind of in cl- close proximity with each other. And it's become, you know, so very clear how um, how many opportunities there are even just to create a little bit of that adversity um, for the kids because they do have such sheltered lives. Um, you know, my my oldest is constantly wanting me to search something up on Google. That's what he says. He, can we search it up? Because he wants to show me something, something he wants to buy, something he wants to do. And I've gotten into forcing him to describe for me the thing he wants me to see. And it drives him absolutely nuts. And I realize that this is not massive hardship. He's not searching for food. He's not searching for love. He's not searching for resources. Um, but it's literally just making something harder for him every day. And he's so mad at me about it. And I just won't let up. And I said, you are, you know, mom, that's so hard. Why can't you just look at it? And I said, well, you are made to do hard things. Um, You just mentioned you had three kids, and I'm sure they have a very, very different upbringing than the one that you had. Um, We've talked on this show a lot with other guests that are parents about, you know, and and interestingly enough, we have quite a few guests that are this um, kind of, you know, rags to riches sort of story. And down to a one, everyone is struggling with how do we create that same, um, you know, strong muscle of grit, of determination um, in our children when they just frankly have more um, available to them. Uh, what is what is your approach? And perhaps it's even similar to the way you approach your investing as well. I mean, our children are our greatest investment. You know, it, it's a phenomenal question. There is no easy answer to how do you engineer grit? How do you recreate the circumstances that, you know, in a, in a sense gave, you know, you, you. Um, we try to do a few things. So one is um, just honest awareness with, with them about how lucky they are. Um, now they don't have an appreciation for it because they haven't experienced, you know, the alternative, but a lot of that is whether they're volunteering or working with people who are far less well off than them, it, it opens their eyes. Um, you know, we don't talk about specific dollars. We don't talk about, you know, actual money, but just they see a clear difference. I mean, I grew up, I literally never traveled anywhere except for Puerto Rico with my grandparents, like on three occasions. Um, I'd never been out of the country and, uh, you know, they live a very different life. And so, just the the general appreciation for that, them constantly reminding, uh, be, being reminded um, how lucky they are. I mean, th- this is even like almost a stoic trope, but every time we walk out, if it's sort of cold or rainy, you know, since they're little, I've always said like, it could be worse. You know, you could have uh, a broken leg and it could be sleeting and hailing. And so there's always this sort of relative counterfactual that you can at least appreciate and not take for granted the very fortunate circumstances that they were born into. Um but I think, you know, each one of them in their own way also, whether it's a combination of genetic predisposition or circumstances, is going to face, you know, something. So my oldest is the smallest. She was born petite. She was born early. Um, she will always be, you know, in the like one to three percentile of height. And um, as a girl, it's a lot better than if she was a boy. But um, for her, she already, I see it. She's got the chip on her shoulder. And there are a lot of times where I want to help her and like tell her, you know, it's going to be okay. But I actually find again in this uh, lovingly perverse way that this is just like a phenomenal virtue for her because she already has this chip on her shoulder. She hates being the little one. She hates, you know, she's like scrappy and tough and and she's clever and Machiavellian sometimes to a fault. But uh, but that's all because, you know, she's like this, uh, this, this tiny little, you know, uh, petite girl compared to everybody else. You know, my, my strategy has been to be totally upfront with them about my anxiety, concerns, fears, and preparations around COVID. Um, I've been pretty early to this as a serious problem. 
And we've basically empowered our kids as a team. This is your role. This is your role. This is my role. This is your mother's role. Um, this is how we're going to handle this as a family nucleus. Um, and it's been pretty empowering. You know, it's, um, it's a challenge for them. It's a lost year. There's no question. Um, my oldest is my son, who's a, a very, very bright kid. And, and, um, you know, is genuinely hurt that he couldn't finish the school year and hasn't been able to see his friends. And, um, you know, I think about that a lot and the pain that that's caused. But then again, you know, this might be a nice experiment in um, creating that, that challenge, that pain that then results in the grit and the chip on the shoulder because, you know, he had a plan and he was working his plan and then his whole world changed. And so, you know, it, it's been a pretty pretty interesting time as a parent. And, you know, I know lots of people listening are going through the exact same thing. And, and um, you know, our audience is, is such that, you know, most people have done pretty well in life and then they, they worry about these struggles with their kids. And so in a way, you know, maybe COVID brings out the, the stress test that we don't want to impose on our kids, but it's been imposed upon us and maybe we can take it as an opportunity for that, uh, develop that chip and get them, get them motivated. So, but you know, let's let's pivot to Lux because um, Lux is a really fascinating place. I've I've read a lot about it, um, and I've followed you again. I've, I've watched almost all of your interviews and and follow, follow you on Twitter and read everything I can about Lux. But it's it's a really fascinating concept. Why don't you tell the audience what Lux is, how you came up with it, um, how it was born, and and what the strategy is today? So the name, of course, uh, Latin for light, and it was born in this idea of looking where others weren't. Um, the origin was really looking at the history of venture capital. And if you study the history of venture every you know 10 or 15 years, there's some secular wave in technology and some dominant firms end up um, uh, profiting most from it, either by virtue of domain expertise, they know a lot about the particular sector that's in favor, or uh, by virtue of luck and the luck can parlay. So if you look at this, you know, sort of these cascading S-curves over time, in the 1970s, it was mostly around personal computers. Um, and so people that were investing in like, you know, uh, Tandy and... Um, uh, you know, early uh, compact, you know, we're, we're, we're um, seven rows and down in Texas and, and, you know, they crushed it. They, they started as like newsletter writers. They had insights into the P PC industry. They knew that the PCs would then lead into the software in the 1980s. That sort of became the, the, the phenomenon. Uh, 1990s, you had, you know, biotech in the early part of the decade, it became then a nuclear winter. And then in the mid to late nineties, you had, you know, the browser and then all the infrastructure and the dot-com boom. Uh, that got laid in, in fiber optic cables, laid and lit. And um, and then everything that failed from that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, sort of became the detritus that become the combinatorial fodder for the next wave. And then you had all these mobile and app and everything. So every 10 or 15 years, you had this wave and a handful of firms dominated. They built their reputation. They parlayed it. Um, it is a business that is a hits-driven business. It is dominated by luck. Um, there's a disproportionate amount of uh, intellectual dishonesty in the business. People taking credit and, you know, everybody thinks that they're a lot smarter when they're successful and a lot stupider when they're not. Um, you know, the truth is it's, it's closer to every, all of us being, you know, relatively stupid. Um, and, and most of it is a, is a uh, uh, really a judgment on character of people, of, um, you know, are these people that are going to be able to raise capital and persuade and so on. And so, you know, we can talk about the sort of defining characteristics of, of uh, entrepreneurs that we like and don't. But uh, in the origins of Lux, we said, you know, let's go out and raise friends and family money. And I joke that I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of family, but um, we, none of them had any money. Um, and, and, and we got lucky and met a guy through a, a fellow classmate in my investment banking group um, whose father worked at TRW. And TRW uh, and BDM were combined in, a, in a, a private equity transaction by a firm called the Carlisle Group. And I didn't even know what Carlisle was. Um, I had an older friend who went to work there right out of college. Um, and I get this meeting with one of the founders of Carlisle, Bill Conway. And so David Rubenstein's the famous one who raises all the money and, you know, puts his name on buildings. Bill is far more, you know, personally discreet, but is really the investor. And so we had an, an audience with Bill, um, you know, geez, almost 20 years ago. And, um, you know, Carlisle had maybe a few billion dollars at the time. And I don't know the circumstances, you know, being intellectually honest and accepting this idea of randomness and optionality of that day or the night before for Bill you know, did he get good news? Was he in a cheery mood? Did he just have a great meal? But whatever those set of circumstances, which are not wholly attributable to me or my ability to pitch, um, he turned and said, I hope you make a billion. And he became an investor in our management company. And the idea that we pitched him was, you know, we have all these venture firms that form in these different waves. We think the next wave is going to be the physical and material sciences. So they're totally neglected. If you go to the universities and government labs, nobody is going to the people that are experts in physics and chemistry and material science, they're all focused on the optical networking guys. They're all focused on the dot-com and the software guys. And he said, all right, well, if you're right, 
how do you compete with Kleiner and Sequoia and Benchmark and Axel, all these top tier firms, because they have the reputation, they've got pedigreed institutional LPs, and they will blow you out of the water. And so we spent the first few years basically building a platform that would give us some sort of edge, or we thought would give us an edge. And we had to do it out of necessity, uh, sort of like when Dell came up with their just-in-time negative working capital, you know, it's sort of out of necessity. So the platform that we created was um, media research and public policy. And at the time, each one of these things was very critical for sourcing, for being able to build a reputation, for being able to influence certain outcomes and get access. Um, on the media side, it was born in this old Ben Franklin quote, would you persuade appeal to interest, not reason? And the idea was, could we partner with a brand where people like the brand, trust the brand, and it would overcome the fact that nobody knew who the heck Josh Wolf or Peter Hebert or Lux was. And so we ended up partnering with Forbes. And um, there was a older guy, Jim Michaels, who passed away a few years after, um, incredible man, uh, renowned for being able to condense the King James Bible to 10 words. And uh, he, he brought us in with another guy, Matt Schifrin, who was a longtime editor. And they let us write about nanotech and advanced materials. And I experienced two things during this time. One, I learned all about George Gilder and the hype that he had created during the telecom boom. You know, there's this, if you remember in the late 90s, this Gilder effect where George would publish his newsletter and, uh, you know, this thing would just, um, uh, whatever names he mentioned, these things would skyrocket, primarily a retail audience. Um, I got to know George. He ended up filing for personal bankruptcy. The business was a, a flop and learned a lot of lessons about the mistakes not to make. The second thing I learned was the promotion in these newsletters businesses is so disgustingly skizzy and skeezy and just like, uh, I mean, it's just, it's awful. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've been a recipient of these, but it's just, uh, uh, it just preys upon old people and retail investors and suckers. And, and so, so we had done that for a few years, basically publishing a newsletter with Forbes, got a column at the magazine, uh, doing video shows and talks and, and over time, Pete had the great idea, we should really shift this towards institutional and more credible and less you know, cheesy. And so we ended up spinning out from Lux Capital, a business called Lux Research, which is sort of like a Gartner, Forster corporate executive board focused on you know, big institutional investors, much more credible, didn't have any of the BS marketing, made us feel clean. Um, and so we shifted into that. Uh, that gave us the great virtue that we got the insights of all the big companies that wanted to understand where could they find the innovations that they wanted to acquire you know, should they license com from companies? Should they acquire the company? Should they compete with them and do it themselves? And so we ended up building up a business of about 140 people, uh, seven offices worldwide, um, and selling to, you know, the Fortune 500 companies that spend a significant portion of their revenue on research and development, where the buying centers were typically CTOs, heads of M&A, uh, VPs of technology. And it just gave us this great network. So now you got this media piece, you got this research piece, and then we really cribbed from Carlisle's early days let's have close proximity to Capitol Hill and try to understand where dollars were going to flow and laws might go so that we could help our companies. And at the time when we started all this, I wasn't even a registered voter. I was totally naive and knew nothing about politics. I think I had read, you know, Chris Matthews hardball. It was like, you know, the extent of my political knowledge at the time. And uh, we ended up creating this platform uh, and it, and it, it was proved really useful. If you were an entrepreneur, we can come to you and say, look, we can get you tens of millions of dollars of non-dilutive money competitively won through government agencies. We can raise your profile in the media when the time is right with appropriate disclosure. And, you know, Bill Conway, as many others have, have said, uh, said, you know, it takes 10 years to build a reputation, 10 seconds to lose it. And so anytime we ever wrote about any company we were ever invested in, just full disclosure. And then the research side, uh, we were able to navigate our companies to the key decision makers very quickly, which became really value add for their business. And if you were, you know, a small startup that you were trying to get to a key decision maker and do a, a business development deal. And it would normally take you six months. If you could get that done in six hours or six weeks, it was just huge value add. So we started with a small amount of money that was effectively a pledge fund from Bill. Uh, first fund was a little under $10 million. And then um, it was basically him and another guy, 80-20 uh, split. We had you know no management fees, just sort of scraping by. And then we went out and raised $100 million fund too, which was really our first institutional fund. And we had some absolutely incredible um, anchor investors. We had Ken Griffin of Citadel and Stan Druckenmiller and, and Pete Peterson and Bill Conway. And, and these guys just like, it just, it, it stepped up the level of expectations we had of ourselves, of um, the sort of the quality of the deals we had to do. Uh, and, and that for us was just a huge formative thing. So uh, the funds progressed from there. We went um, uh, from hundred million to 250 to 350 to 400, 500. And now we're two and a half billion under management. I still remember the first $100,000 checks. Um, 
you know, grinding down my teeth and going gray in the fundraising process. I always say there's no, you know, fun in fundraising. Um, and uh, we now have about 130 portfolio companies, 10 partners, um, East Coast operation in New York, West Coast in Menlo Park, operators, uh, Unum Lux, One Lux, and invest in a pretty wide diversity of pretty cutting edge, bordering on sci-fi kind of technologies. So going from, you know, Cornell to investment banking to then being funded by Carlyle Group, it must have felt that the world was opening up very quickly uh, in, in really incredible ways for you uh, and for your partners. You know, a lot of young entrepreneurs uh, and folks that start businesses, um, you know, have a lot of false starts. And, you know, to hear you tell the story of Lux, um, there was an incredible amount of patience and, and forethought in taking the time to, as you describe it, really build out this foundation from the media relationships, the public policy, that I can only imagine have created a network of relationships and understanding that have uh, perhaps provided quite an edge in the investments you ended up making. Um, were you uh, on the receiving end of, of some really terrific advice and counsel in those early days? Was just this intuitive? Um, you know, what were some of those big decisions that obviously, you know, the ones that you've made, uh, the one that the ones that you made ended up, um, you know, bringing you down this path? But there were there times when you considered moving faster in different directions with this uh, new backing you had, and and kind of what were some of those um, critical decision points where you think, gosh, I'm glad we remained patient. Um, so, uh, just a, uh, a, it's a great question. Um, it, it was Bill Conway specifically, not Carlisle as an entity, which was really valuable because, because Bill as an individual, um, you know, probably psychologically for me without a father figure, he became this sort of paragon that I almost mythologized as, you know, what would Bill do? I'm not a religious person at all. I'm sort of the complete uh, other end of the spectrum, but, um, Bill is very religious, you know, Irish Catholic goes to mass every morning. Um, I think, you know, largely defines his ethics, you know, in part by the religion, but just extraordinary guy with an extraordinary reputation. And, um, to me, he's sort of like the Warren Buffett of private equity and in the way that he's respected and revered. And so, uh, I got so extraordinarily lucky. There is nothing in my life that I could have pointed to that would have led me a priori again to, to a path that said, okay, you're going to get this meeting with Bill Conway and you're going to do well in that meeting and he's going to make a decision to back you. Um, and so I think once we had that, I felt extraordinarily lucky to not mess that up to make him proud. Um, and, and he would, you know, you know, this guy now, you know, running hundreds of billions of dollars would call and say, you know, I just want you to know I'm really proud of you. And like that would echo in my ear for months. And, um, that to me was just a really powerful, um, uh, mantle to, to just, you know, sort of hold on to. I don't know. It's, 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 um, it's something that e even in the moment, I think I was very conscious of, you know, don't mess this up. Um, and it was really like the, the, the personal sense of pride and not wanting to disappoint somebody who put their reputation on the line and, and believed in us. So, th so that was one thing. Um, I actually, uh, one of the other things you mentioned was patience, and and I actually think it's impatience. Um, I think I am extraordinarily impatient. Um, thankfully, I have a partner in Peter, my co-founder, who is dispositionally my opposite. You know, he is more of an optimist. I am more of a pessimist. You know, we joke, he invented the airplane, I invented the parachute. This yin and yang between um, him seeing sort of the best in people and me expecting the worst. You know, I would say my favorite line in, in Shakespeare is, there's daggers in men's smiles. Um, it's been an amazing balance, but I am generally biased towards um, towards action, a little bit more impetuous, um, a little bit more risk taking. And Pete is a phenomenal tempering force. I, I can't tell you how many tweets I've tweeted and then deleted because he's texted me and be like, "Do you really want to say that?" And uh, so, so he's he's an amazing um, uh, you know tempering force. But 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 I think it's impatience that, that, uh, you know, in hindsight, um, accounted for some of our early success, um, going to every event that we could speaking at every event, networking, you know, understanding the value of a person, understanding also in a nonlinear way that somebody that you just met might be connected to somebody in two layers that are sort of hidden and just, you know, constantly going down that dovetailing rabbit hole. Um, because you just never know, you know, the path is not laid out for you to just follow like Legos, you know, take this step and then this step. And so, so much of it is just, you know, impatience mixed with ambition, a chip on your shoulder, and then 
sort of cleverly seeing opportunities and trying to you know put people and pieces together. You know, it's funny. Um, George is laughing at me because you're basically describing our partnership. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, maybe uh, all great partnerships have that element. And um, you know, we started TC basically posting Excel charts on Twitter, and here we are interviewing Josh Wolf on our own podcast. And so it just goes to show. Uh, Wait, but of you, who, who is the who is the optimist? Uh, there's a mix of both of us between what you described. Um, I would say that TC is probably more of an optimist, but I'm more of a risk taker. Yeah. Um, I don't find that those are mutually but I'm a uh, huge, inclusive or exclusive. I'm a huge believer in just giving to, to our network. And so our whole philosophy is our network is, it's real um, and it's valuable and it scales with three things. Um, how big it is, how diverse it is, and how much we give to it. And I'm a relentless giver. And George is a rules follower. And every once in a while, she'll be like, don't you think we should? And I'm like, no, we're just going to keep giving. And um, A bit more of an, uh, a debits and credits mind. Yeah. And <laughs> it's so just she, my natural wiring. But on the flip side, you know, she, I like to joke that she'll jump out of the airplane uh, just assuming she'll catch up to the parachute. Um, <laughs> and so that's sort of the, the balance that we have. It's a mix of both of, of what you described. Well, TC, I know, I know from some of our private exchanges about you know, some of your philanthropic involvement and... Um, it's it's truly admirable so so let's pivot to um how you ended up because you know you you have a a loud relative to other people in your community a loud and and skeptical you know skeptical of tesla presence in social media um is it is it my use of all caps at times yeah but i I admire you know you have your opinions and you express them and you're not afraid of the backlash um how did you come to those beliefs i know how i we came to ours um you know walk us through sort of your your belief system and, and how it sort of was triggered with what we're seeing with Tesla and, and then, you know, your experience on social media being sort of, I'd say one of the more prominent skeptical people uh, of the Tesla story. Well, I think maybe what's notable also is the sp- specific thing that is a, uh, I break with my venture brethren, right, who normally pray at the altar of all entrepreneurs and, you know, against the incumbent. And, um, and, and it, I think it's in part, you know, the sort of youthful distrust whether from my own family circumstances or from where I grew up, you know, geographically in Coney Island, where everybody's sort of a, a con man or a huckster, you know, trying to run some scheme. I, I've always said that I'm sort of long, you know, evidence and verifiability and falsifiability in this Popperian way. Like I'm just long science, skepticism, thinking in probabilities. Um, and I'm short spin and lies and manipulation and hucksters and frauds and snake oil and, and faith, which, you know, is a controversial one uh, and certitude. And so um, when I see, Somebody, I mean, the number one thing without uh, any negative tinge of like fraud, but when I see one of our CEOs say um, that they just saw a competitor and it's validating, you know, that just angers me because um, I, I want them to be hyper competitive. But at the same time, if I ask them a question and they're like, this is what we're going to do in the next quarter, like I'm absolutely certain of it, they might tell themselves that kind of thing because they need a pep talk or they might need to rally their people. But if they're being dishonest, it just sets me off. Um, because either they're truly naive or they're intentionally misleading. And I think that that fear of being duped, of being, um, um, you know, sort of the, the, the rug pulled out from under you, I have this natural protective mechanism, which I think so many people in this particular community that, you know, we're sort of all part of, um, of skeptics about either a particular company or a particular style of person. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's sort of a virtue in, in the face of vice, I think. Well, you know, with what we're experiencing uh, through all the, the economic activity that has slowed down as a result of COVID, um, you know, that point of view is, you know, certainly coming to be quite prescient, which is, you know, a lot of these companies that were making claims and building a lot of narrative, uh, you know, when, when the tide washes out, there there isn't, uh, you know, there isn't much really under the surface um, that will support them through uh, even a limited rocky time, uh, let alone a prolonged one. Um, along I, with- I, I, I'm sorry, I, I want to believe that, but but part of me feels also that there are so many people that are going to find ways to get easy money and do exactly what they're really good at, which is, you know, lying and cheating and misleading and uh, finding ways to prop up businesses that should fail. And it's going to be as infuriating as it is to us when, you know, you see a blatant lie. You know, it's it's, it's that feeling, again, for me, it's partially rooted, rooted in um, sort of a, an aversion to religiosity and, and seeing the 
the you know the shining grins of the uh, Joel Osteens and the Sunday preachers who I feel wittingly and cynically are just getting people to part with their money. And when you see these sort of carnival barkers that do the same thing, where you know that they know that they're duping people, and um, you know we're all sort of shouting, you know, like the emperor's got no clothes, you know, monorail man is cheating you. Um, I, you know, where that comes from itself is psychologically, I find very interesting because um, we're all flawed, you know, but there's like this righteous pursuit of just pointing at the people that are trying to cheat a system. It's, it's certainly got evolutionary roots as social primates, but it's, it's just so infuriating. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I mean, as a natural rules follower, um, you know, a lot of this is, uh, you know, beyond infuriating for me. And, and I, and I do agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, as you've pointed out, there's going to be a, a lot of money pumped into the system, and it's going to be largely grabbed by those that are well-practiced in grabbing. Uh, and there's certainly, uh, you know, a, a large population there uh, to be, you know, picking up the dollars as they get pumped out, and, and perhaps it won't be uh, quite as evident so quickly. But eventually economics, uh, you know, economic value does need to be created uh, eventually, but uh, that might be a longer time frame than than is satisfying. Along those lines, um, let's talk a little bit about the carnival barking uh, in the autonomy space. Uh, you have some investments in this area, and so you're also very familiar with the claims that have been made um, by Tesla uh, on autonomy. Uh, maybe just to kind of be a, a backdrop for the, the next couple of minutes, uh, can you share kind of at a high level what are your views on autonomy, where we are, and what your um, kind of take on what we've seen out of Tesla has been? Uh, so overall, I feel like there's inevitability. So this is the sort of bullish positive thing about the space in general. And I always say like, I can, I like to find these directional arrows of progress that point towards certain things that are inevitable. That says nothing about who the company is going to be or what the time frame is going to be. But it's very clear that, you know, going from horse-drawn carriages to cars, you know, quote unquote automobiles, uh, to electric vehicles, to autonomous vehicles, we are not going back to you know horses in the streets. Um, so there's an inevitability to that 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 feels very likely. You know whether that is in two years or twenty years. I mean that's that spread spectrum is very wide. Um, as with anything, you know people always overestimate you know in the short term and then underestimate in the long term. In this case, you know with autonomy, um, there are. Um, you know, uh, people that are sort of intellectually honest, uh, and I consider the people at Zooks to be intellectually honest, and then people who I consider not to be intellectually honest, which, you know, Tesla and others that um, exaggerate the nature of the claims, the timing of it, uh, are able to constantly move goalposts and, you know, deny accountability, um, and just sort of, you know, hold up the shiny shingle, and uh, in some cases, literally, and, uh, uh, you know, just uh, evade uh, responsible, uh, you know, holding people to task and accountability. I remember when we went into Zooks, there must've been six people. It was getting started. You had a very um, outspoken, but brash co-founder um, who was really an amazing guy that helped the company raise money in the early days. Um, but he was a storyteller. And um, and there was something about him that was captivating and persuasive and romantic and and um, visionary and ambitious and all the things you would want to bet on. But, but the real bet that you were making in Zooks was on uh, Jesse Levinson, who uh, ha you know happens to be independently amazing, um, but uh, you know was really one of the leaders of the Stanford self-driving cars initiatives. And I remember asking him, you know, why why not go work for you know Tesla? And this has got to be six, five, six years ago. Um, why not go work for Tesla or you know Apple or? Um, and and the the visceral immediate laugh was like, why would I do that? And he he was just so. Um, either confident or entrepreneurially naive, which sometimes you know you can conflate the two. Uh, but there was an authenticity as we asked him about each effort that was going on. He was so well versed in the advantages and the limitations. And one of the other things, in the same way, when somebody just wholesale swipes at all competitors and says, "Oh, you know, nobody," like he was pointing out legitimate things that people had that he felt he would have to set his sights on and the turrets of attention to be able to you know uh, outcompete. So. Um, you talk to them and they, they will tell you, you know, this is an extraordinarily hard task. I mean, they, they are, uh, the number one thing that they are trying to do, I always try to look, find what's the technological, uh, differentiation. What's the true competitive advantage that somebody can do that, you know, somebody else can't do. 
they are trying to take this whole bunch of disparate sensors, LIDAR optics, vibrational sensors, thermal sensors, just like everything that you can possibly imagine. And yes, LIDAR matters, right? I mean, uh, there's lots of political reasons um, for Mobileye and others that, you know, you've heard Tesla and Elon, you know, sort of crap on these other things because suddenly things weren't available to them. But um, LIDAR matters. Uh, Every sensor package that you can possibly have matters. And then the key thing is not just getting those sensors and the hardware. Sometimes they are, uh, you know, from third parties. Sometimes you're going to develop these things yourself. But then you have to calibrate them together in real time, almost like how human senses work or act in harmony. Um, you know, even after we suffer from age or injury, like the, all these different parts work together, and and you need that same sort of thing in a in a, in a inorganic system. So um, we've been very bullish on the demonstrations. They're very honest about what they where their limitations are. They've been doing, um, you know, publicly available video releases of uh, vehicles driving fully autonomously on highway, city, rain, sleet, darkness, pedestrians, triple park cars, construction sites. I mean, kinds of things that nobody is doing. Um, and they've been relatively uh, secretive until the past year and sort of been leaking out. Um, but but their big risk is just capitalization. They're going to continue to need to raise, you know, they've raised close to a billion dollars. They will probably need to raise another billion dollars over the next two years. And uh, that is a gargantuan task. If they do it, they will, you know, thread the needle, which is a very narrow, you know, eye uh, to to pass through. Um, and they do not have a, a sort of bigger than life, you know, huckster on the stage that can lower the cost of capital uh, in the way that you know others can. That, and that, by the way, is a legitimate advantage. That is that is a true asset of a company. Uh, somebody that can, whether they tell the truth or not, you know, access very low cost of uh, capital. So um, very bullish on them, very bullish on uh, companies we're not invested in. I think Aurora is very legitimate. Um, I think Waymo is very legitimate. I think um, Cruise is very legitimate. We we actually, um, this was, you know, in our annals of uh, errors of omission. It was my partner, Shaheen Farshi. He's a PhD electrical engineer. He's obsessed with cars. Used to work at GM, uh, several startups, became a venture capitalist. And he leads a lot of our efforts in hardware and autonomy and satellites and drones and uh, solid state li- LIDAR companies and all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, uh, he brought Cruise in. We offered Kyle uh, $20 million on a $40 million pre, so $60 million post. Um, we were going to own about a third of the business. And uh, there was a guy, Sam Altman, who was uh, part of Y Combinator, a prominent Silicon Valley uh, independent investor, a friend of Elon's. And uh, he, he wanted to... Uh, he was already an existing investor. Uh, he wanted a $80 million pre-money valuation, which was about double what we were offering. And we were very price disciplined. We said, no, uh, and you know, let somebody else do it. Uh, Spark, who are also good guys, um, ended up doing the deal at $80 million. Uh, we, in the course of diligence, introduced them to General Motors. Uh, GM then, because of that introduction, uh, fast forward maybe 10 months, uh, ended up buying them. Nominally, it was a lot larger than... than um, it was reported to be a lot larger than it actually was, but... Um, it was about $500 million. Uh, but what was really interesting was the way that this deal went down. Uh, 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 Cruise uh, uh, asked GM uh, to invest and they were going to invest $50 million. And so uh, they just left blank in the deal docs what percentage of the company that they wouldn't know. And so um, uh, uh, Cruise uh, sort of filled it in for them and said uh, uh, 2%. And uh, it, you know, it implied a billion-dollar valuation. And they said, well, you know, at that price, we should talk about, um, you know, buying you. Uh, But it was just this sort of random, bold, literal stroke of, uh, um, you know, crazy risk taking that the the cruise guys, you know, Jim could have told them go pound sand, Uh, but but it ended up working in their favor. So, you know, I'm going to marry two two things you just said and ask you a bit of a provocative question. So, when you were talking earlier about you know the physical material sciences being the next big thing, I was actually getting my PhD in that space at the time. I remember Lux Research. Um, well, and I come at this problem from that perspective and I've described in many settings, my realization was when, you know, Elon walked out on stage with this obviously fake solar tile that, uh, couldn't work based on my own knowledge. Uh, in the moment, that was my big realization that, wow, like there's way more here that's going on. And I, and I've worked in and around the auto space for a long time. And I decided to just insert myself in a automotive material science conference. And, um, I did an experiment, which is I... I decided to select the 10 people at that conference that I respected the most. And I just walked up to them and said, hey, if, if, um, if I say a word, I want you to give me the first word that pops into your mind. And the word I chose was Tesla. 
And of those 10 people, nine said something to the effect of Ponzi or fraud, and one said no comment. Um, this was long before you know, this really blew up to what it is today. But back then, everyone who knew, knew. And uh, my provocative question to you is, is it the same in the autonomy space? N nobody takes Tesla seriously on autonomy. You know, the, the analysts and Jonas and, you know, people put this out. I mean, the, the, the robo-taxi comment that, you know, allowed them to raise capital and has never been held accountable. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, the idea of all the collected miles, I mean, just the stories that are spun. And it's so infuriating because it's infuriating as much, you know, and I'm sure people feel this in the political realm, but in part you, and I say this in a, again, a perverse way, like you look at what he's able to do with, um, with almost an admiration, uh, because, uh, there's a cleverness, there's a, a very purposeful use of language. Uh, it isn't born in like a, uh, it's, he's not, a, it's not born in foolishness. Uh, it's, it's, it's born more in a cunning and, and I'm as mad as the, the audience, that you know laps it up and and unquestioningly um, and naively and and I see them sort of like sheep you know being led to a slaughter but you know thus far they haven't right they, thus far if you believed you were rewarded um, and I, I think it's been the same sort of thing um, you know the the tactics uh, over time just like you know we're talking about having children if your child does something and they get rewarded for doing it you know if they whine and they get what they want they're gonna whine. Um, if they're super polite and they get what they want, they're going to be super polite, but there's a positive feedback effect, obviously behaviorally that, that rewards certain kinds of behavior. And, and heretofore, you know, every tactic that, that has been used by management has, has worked. Um, you know, even when there's punishment, it's, it's almost, um, welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I have struggled, you know, um, Times, you know, where, where, you know, LFG, you know, like where, where you see this thing, you're like, this is the catalyst when people are going to wake up. And, you know, I keep, I'm, I'm very close friends with some very prominent short sellers and I've been part of, you know, small cabal of, of, uh, of, uh, investors that get together and think about ideas. And I'm one of the few venture guys that, you know, comes with fads and frauds and technological obsolescence. And, uh, but, but this one is, um, is so uh, frustratingly like a religion. Um, you know, I've always said that, you know, Elon doesn't sell cars, he sells a future and he does that brilliantly. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I've, I've also joked that the only company that's made more money from renderings is Pixar. He's very skillful at it. Um, and, and if, if, if there was an, the thing that I guess frustrates me is I, I, it, it's not needed. I truly believe that if, if, and, and I actually think he probably knows this, but if he can go back seven years and basically be honest and say, I've got big ambitions, you know, I'm going to try to do this and then this and then this, and, and I might fail along the way. Uh, it's going to need a lot of capital, but if it works, it's going to be really huge. I bet you he could have attracted the same true believers, but without needing the tactics of, you know, mendacity and deception and, um, and, and it would have been far less condescending and cynical about the believers. Um, I, I, I truly think that people probably would have, he would have attracted a certain kind of investor that would have given him the capital to, to do these, you know, crazy fanciful things but without needing any of the dishonesty. But I think once some of the dishonesty kicked in and it lured some of the institutional investors and then, you know, you start telling lies and you, and you can't stop. And, um, I, it, it's, to, to me, that's where tragedy comes from. And I, 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 I do think it ends in tragedy, but, um, you know, I thought that for a while and I've been utterly wrong. Yeah, same here. I, the phrase I use, and look, nobody's perfect. We all have our faults, as you've alluded to. And I wonder sometimes whether our own knowledge of our own faults doesn't drive our motivation to sometimes see it, you know, in others. But this is a, on a massive scale that I can't even conceive. Um, it's ethical incrementalism. You know, when you read The Smartest Guys in the Room, once Enron, you know, institutionalized how to fix the earnings by a nickel doing a dime and a quarter and 50 cents and a dollar became old hat and um, quarter after quarter after quarter, he's not only doing it, but getting away with it. It's, it's truly amazing. I was commenting to say that this, this is sort of like um, catch me if you can meets Hudson or proxy. Like there's elements of stock fraud, you know, from the ladder and there's this cat and mouse game 
being played by, you know, this entire community of Tesla Q and some very prominent, you know, shorts publicly. Um, but, it, but it's almost, I, I think it is a game now. And, um, yeah. Uh, Lying when the truth doesn't hurt just to show that he could. Well, and it continues to solidify this kind of us versus them um, component of the cult, which I think is very important for his support level. It's kind of you're in or you're out, you get it or you don't. And there's a very clear judgment placed on what it means to be in versus what it means to be out uh, when it comes to kind of the circle of Elon. Yeah, that, that's why I think one of the great, you know, classic textbook really that defines us is, is uh, Eric Hoffer's True Believer. Because it, it talks about that in-group, out-group mentality and, and pledging fealty and being part of something, your identity, getting caught up in it. Um, yeah. So I have a side passion. Um, and I and I look very respectful of your time. It's been a wonderful hour. We're coming up to the end of it. And um, I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch this topic. Um, I've long been, I, let's say, even before I was suspicious of Tesla, I was very suspicious of SoftBank. And I happened to catch an interview that you did, I believe with Raul on Real Vision, where you had a bit of a throwaway comment about sort of what's actually going on at SoftBank. Um, not just kind of throwing this at you here on the podcast, but um, I think I know what's going on at SoftBank. What do you think's going on at SoftBank? Well, I think what was going on was um, you had a bunch of Deutsche Bank structured credit guys um, with uh, um, Rajiv, who you know is um, a, a character. Uh, and, and one that you know you, you don't want to cross. I mean, I've heard some insane stories, um, you know, of, of people who have feared for their life. Um, that identified that we were in a bull market with rising asset prices that was very akin to the housing crisis. And I think people um, uh, that are able to suss out what is happening. I mean, I, I have this view again, sort of rooted maybe in Coney Island, that most games, whether it's politics or you know regulation markets, um, they're rigged. And, and someone's trying to rig it and some, somebody has been clever enough to figure out how it works. And, and that's the key is finding it. Um, obviously, you know, you avoid, you know, the negative expected outcome games in the casino and you avoid playing the carny games unless it's for entertainment value. But I think, I think there are some people that under, understood in the mortgage crisis. And I think there's some people that understood in this sort of explosive, um, you know, fiat currency, low interest rate, explosive equity valuations. Um, that that there was a system to exploit, and that you know, just like a decade ago, Goldman and others were calling them muppets. I, I think uh, you know it was easy to sort of identify the sheep, and so uh, I think SoftBank understood that with the enormous amount of leverage that they had, that if they could make investments and be sort of the clearer of valuations in an inefficient market, um, you can create all of these paper gains that could serve as collateral against that mothership indebtedness and just pop up a, a house of cards. Um, and if you had all kinds of, you know, uh, um, intercompany dealings and influence, um, you know, that maybe you can come out the other side, uh, with an Alibaba like win, you just need one of those, you know, to sort of justify all the crazy chaos and shell games that you might have going on. And so that to me was basically what happened. They, they came in, they took what I think was a pernicious comment from a prominent venture guy who I respect, which is Mark Andreessen and said, you know, there's only 10 or 15 companies that matter in a given year and the price you pay for them in hindsight really doesn't matter. The problem is obviously if you do that in aggregate, then you have no price discipline and you're just you know paying for uh, anything at any price. So that narrative sort of took off in the valley, and then you had uh, a marginal price setter that came in and was you know bestowing unicorn status upon people um, and writing two hundred million dollar checks, owning twenty percent. We had a direct personal experience with this um, in one of our companies. Bill Gates is my co investor and was fellow board member, and uh, they offered you know a crazy amount of money at a crazy price. And they had crazy commercial terms that they wanted stable to this that made everything that we would do totally uneconomic. And most companies would have taken that. They would have had, you know, multi-hundred million dollar purchase order. They would have had a billion dollar valuation. Um, you know, they would have been benighted as the one in the in the, in the sector of the industry, you know, being s s uh, selected by SoftBank. And fortunately, you know, Bill being the richest or second richest man was, you know, basically said, no, I'm not going to take that deal because um, he didn't need to. And you know, I'm very grateful for that. But um, but we've seen a bunch of our companies on the receiving end of term sheets where we just scratch our head and, you know, they went from being the most coveted investor that, that, that you could have in the Valley because they would, you know, knight you and capitalize you and, you know, basically assure your competitor's destruction to, um, you know, being almost as, uh, undesirable as being near somebody with COVID. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, now it's, it's a total negative selection. There's a huge amount of reputational damage that's been done. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh. You know, sort of depending on your view, the 800 pound gorilla or Godzilla, um, you know, is, is 
one venture guy told me, I, you know, I've, I've met Godzilla and he's a five foot and change man in Japan named Masa. <laughs> Look on that note, you know, Josh, um, when George and I started this podcast, we committed to doing 50 episodes and regardless of where it went. And uh, this is an important episode for us. It's episode number 25. It's the halfway point. And for us to have uh, somebody of your caliber, intellect and stature to, uh, you know, bestow upon us the, um, the brand that comes with having Josh Wolf on our podcast, we couldn't be more grateful. And uh, the hour was incredibly well spent and we can't wait to release it. I am super grateful for your guys' continued hard work in chronicling this crazy, you know, moment that we're in, and uh, and doing it with you know humor and um, uh, and 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 just capturing the great surreal surreal nature of it. So thank you. Oh, indeed, we can't look away now. <laughs> so thanks, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Looking forward, guys. Tesla fans say, oh, I can't wait for Model Y, solar roof, cyber truck. Tesla fans say, oh, you bet against Elon? Huh, I wish you a lot of luck. But you know, we skeptics, we say, yeah, Elon's a good fundraiser, but otherwise he's not that great. For example, I saw him at a carnival and he could not guess my weight.